everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing, and very often those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show. In the case of this month's guest, Lindsay Lerman, she was recommended to me by both Megan Lamb and Dave Fitzgerald. So if you liked those episodes, you like this one, and if you like this one and haven't heard those, go back and take a listen. Lindsay Lerman is a writer and translator. Her book, I'm From Nowhere, was published from Clash in 2019. Her second book, What Are You, is also published from Clash in 2022. Her essays, interviews, short stories, and poems have been published in the Los Angeles Review of Books, New York Tyrant, The Creative Independent, and more. She has a PhD in philosophy from the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada, and she currently lives in Berlin. If you would like to help out writing The Rapids, that's a show, you can do so by giving me money. There's a couple easy ways to do that. Patreon.com slash NoisemakerJoe. For a couple bucks a month, you get early episodes. For a one-time donation, you can chuck some coins over at paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe and you can also buy my book it's called tired it's on amazon you should be able to find it pretty easy you can also help the show out for free by retweeting my tweets about it following me on twitter and instagram blogging about it saying nice things about it giving it an appropriate rating on the place where you listen to it or just by lighting a candle and chanting my name several times on a moonlit night that might help too now without further ado let's get into my conversation with Lindsay. i think the the biggest sort of thing that i was picking up on between the two books is this push and pull between agency and desire where um the sort of main characters like almost have their desires like ripping their agency away um where it's yeah. like i want and sometimes the desire is nebulous where it's just like i know that i want something um and like and i'm from nowhere luke and andrew represent <laughs> certain yeah. aspects of desire and so she's kind of like being led there but like resenting the the leading at the same time and it's it's very sort of complicated and um and yeah that's yeah. that's sort of like what i was seeing a lot yeah well that's to me that's just true to life mm -hmm. you know and i'm not a realist i don't aim for realism obviously in my work uh, otherwise i don't think i would write anything you know if i tried to be a strict realist mm. um but the, I think what matters to me is like getting internal states, um, not realistic, but kind of correct or true, you know, feeling, feeling real in mm -hmm. some, some sort of a way that, that matters to me and that I, I think matters to a certain kind of reader. So that's just true to life, you know, like I, we don't really understand our desires. I, and I'm highly suspicious of people who say that they understand all their desires perfectly because I just, I don't see how that's possible. Um, you know, where, where these creatures who are composed of like thousands of other creatures, millions of other creatures, right down to the, the cellular level. And when you think about like all the microbes in our guts and stuff that we are starting to slowly understand, like that affects our cognition and our behavior. Like there's so much we don't understand about who and what we are and why we are the way we are. So to me, it's just really important to have especially the women that I write, um, to be, to just have some sort of, some, some weight, you know, a reality as opposed to being realistic, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, I, I mean, I haven't talked about I'm from nowhere in a long time, so this is kind of a fun 
treat to think back to it. But yeah, I was really thinking a lot about how our desires construct us and then also they are often our undoing, which is not always negative, right? Like I think there's really positive sense of undoing and I, I worked that into I'm from nowhere from the beginning because I don't know what it's like for you to have fallen in love, but I know that for me it is a it's a it's a complete undoing of who and what I am and then a total like from scratch rebuilding. You know, there's some sort of core that sustains of course, but it's it's undoing in this um very vulnerable and challenging way. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of of how true that is to my experience. I think because I I feel like I've talked about it on the show before, but I I met my wife when we were 16 and we started oh, dating wow. shortly after we met and never stopped and now we're 30. Um so I think I think that process is probably true. I'm definitely not the same person I was when I was 16, thank God, but um yeah i think it was i think to write a book about it would it have to be too long of a book so i think i think condensing it is 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 a good thing but yeah i think there's like fundamental things there about who i am yeah yeah and and for sure i'm sure and in like in in the book i also wanted to make it clear that she's also the main character claire she's also undone by the world you know not Mm -hmm. just by desire not just wanting other men or not knowing what to do with the desire of other men. It also has to do with her relationship to the world. You know, she's undone and then remade by the glance of a dog and by a bird that she's watching and observing. You know, it's really not just limited to like capital R romantic love situations, you know, to fall in love with something or, uh, or even a moment is, um, is to be continually undone or to have the possibility of being continually undone by the world, you know? Mm-hmm. yeah and then on top of that it's sort of a near future mid climate yeah. catastrophe yeah. sort of situation too yeah which was fun for me to read in that it almost gave me the solace of understanding that like life will continue to go on uh mm. even even as things get worse at least for those of us who get to survive to to the yeah. very end like was it Claire's dad who said when she was talking about having kids, um, or maybe it was was John's dad, like the world's been ending for a long time and people keep having kids? Oh, I don't even remember <laughs> if I wrote that in there. I mean, I think it's true, but yeah, it's always been ending and we've always been continuing if we can because we're very tenacious, strange creatures. Yeah, and I, what else would we do? <laughs> I know. Um, I know. Yeah, I'm glad that you picked up on the the climate stuff. To me, that was one of the most important elements of the book, even though I didn't do it in a very splashy or loud way. I think it's it's quiet, but that was one of the reasons why I wrote it the way I wrote it. You know, I was really feeling a lot of grief for the um, the way the world was changing really rapidly, like a decade ago. Do you know when it was becoming? suddenly very very clear that we were at this kind of tipping point um and it felt like around a decade ago when like 
that was just kind of an inescapable fact. And a lot has changed since then. And we hardly even know how to use the word fact anymore. You know, things, <laughs> things have gotten kind of crazy. But I was really, I mean, environment and place was so important to me with that one. And I really wanted to, I wanted to capture the, the feeling of being inside a, being a consciousness, being a body, you know, going through the, the heartbreak, um, but also the sort of indescribable beauty of watching a place change and become inhospitable to you. And I, I needed to have that in the book. And it was, it was very strange to me when at first it seemed like a whole bunch of people just didn't pick up on that, or maybe um, they just, they needed it to be louder or bigger or something. It really made me realize how the literature landscape is different than I thought it was. Mm. That's interesting. I've, <laughs> yeah. I've been, I don't know, maybe just over a year ago now, met a group of writers and started, joined their Discord, and, and there's just been a lot of, like, eco-poetics talk in yeah. there. So I'm very kind of saturated in that headspace. Um, yeah. And... I feel like there's there's a couple other like indie lit books that I've read over the past couple of years that take place sort of like mid apocalypse. Yeah. Um and just the how everybody kind of picks up on the mundanity of it. And I feel like even in like like that's why The Walking Dead starts with a guy waking up from a coma, right? Like mm. you you can't I guess they have a series now that's sort of like more at the very beginning of it and stuff but like the initial series starts out with that just kind of like blink and we're in a different world now because that like goopy middleness is hard yeah. to to you never really know when you're post-apocalypse i guess until you've, you've no. been there for a while yeah i don't know how we could ever know right we have no idea what what post-apocalypse is or mid-apocalypse. We, we don't know what we're going through. We don't know where we are, you know, in a hundred years. Will we know? I don't know. But yeah. I've actually never seen The Walking Dead. Oh, that's funny. I, I only ever <laughs> yeah. watched the first season. Um, I was like the perfect age for, yeah. you know, they're doing a high budget zombie TV show. Well, right. I'm however old I was 17 or whatever and like that was perfect and it like yeah it premiered on Halloween so all my buddies were together at like a house it was a big event and then then I just kind of fizzled away from it but yeah yeah zombies are fun though yeah I think so I think there's you know the 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 various uh things that they can allegorically be Yes. Are, are important. When when were you writing I'm From Nowhere? I read the foreword of, of the edition that I have that you wrote in the summer of 2022. Um, mm. But when was the writing? Uh, the writing started, let's see, in like 2010, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, way back then. It was just scraps and ideas. You know, I had a few scenes that came to me and this character came to me. So I was also working, I was a student, I was working on a dissertation and doing a couple of other jobs. And I was really just struck by how much I loved being with this character. Well, all these characters, really, not just the main character. Uh, I really, I loved them. I 
I've said this elsewhere, and I know it sounds a bit strange, but I really feel like the characters kind of set up shop in me. Mm-hmm. And I was just learning to recognize what that feels like. And so um, it took me a, quite a while to accept that I was going to need to write this or um, it would kind of be, I don't know, like lingering in me forever, you know, in unhealthy way, like energy getting stuck in you or something. So I just started writing it little by little by little by little. A, I didn't have a lot of time. B, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I never do anyway, really. Um, I'm smart, but I really have no idea what I'm doing ever. And I, I just had this vision of a woman throwing a whole bunch of things over a balcony. Maybe I wrote that in the foreword, I think. It sounds and, familiar. Yeah. yeah, I ended up cutting that scene from the book because I thought it was just pointless or just not, not what I wanted it to be. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was 2010. And so, I mean, I worked at it for quite a while, um, slowly. And work is not the right word either. Do you know English is not the best language when it comes to talking about uh, what it means to create and creation. But just little by little, I, um, I created it <laughs> little by little. And then it also took quite a while to figure out how to publish it. And, um, you know, now I'm here. Now you're here. I, so that's interesting that you say the characters came to you. I feel like when I write, I'm like taking an aspect of myself and then forming an identity around it. And then I'm kind of like exhuming mm. that part. Like it kind mm-hmm. of feels like every project I work on is a kind of exorcism. Mm. Um, yeah. And that sounds really grandiose, but <laughs> it's no, it, it was clever in my brain. So I said it, but it's certainly not that serious. But um, uh, I, and I was talking to somebody else about um, what are you last night? I was hanging out with some friends and mm. um, just kind of the idea of like the fundamentally different ways that artists um visualize things happening right like there's not i will have characters that i sort of like construct maybe out of nothing or out of something else but it's largely kind of like looking inward and then building up onto something and then putting it into a situation um Mm -hmm. so this might be a, a very difficult question but like where does what is that like to have um characters kind of come to you and and live with you that are like kind of fundamentally separate from you Mm. well it's just a kind of haunting Mm. you know but i think of all of life is being haunted you know Um, we are really permeable consciousness you know Mm -hmm. um and things come to us and they get kind of lodged in us it's just like that, you know, it's the same as if you have, um, and I don't, and I don't want to call it pathological. And so I'm not going to compare it to any kind of like, you know, psychological issue or trouble because I don't think it's, it's troubling, not for me anyway. Um, you know, when you have something that you really can't stop thinking about, or you can't stop feeling about, or it's just with you, you know, there's a, uh, it's either an idea or maybe a book you read or a movie you saw or a conversation you had with somebody, whatever it is, when it haunts you and it just sticks with you and you get this sense that 
you can't just shoo it away, you mm. know, or if you do try to shoo it away, it's going to keep coming back. You have to actually deal with it in some meaningful way, process it, understand it. That's what it's like when a character comes to me. It's like, um, you know, I guess maybe I could compare it to having a child because mm. you know what it's like to have a child. Someone hands you a child, you, uh, if you have a conscience, you're not just going to say, all right, cool. Like I'll just set it in the, I'll set it in the crib and walk away for the rest of the day. Like you're going to tend to this thing. Um, it's, it's kind of like that. There's a bit of responsibility involved, but then I don't want to get too, um, I don't want to sound self-righteous or righteous about it at all, you know, cause it's not as though I'm on a grand mission from God. Um, or if I am, I don't know, you know, I'm not entitled to have that knowledge. I don't think, mm -hmm. but it's like a haunting mm -hmm. and it's something that I've always had my whole life. I think it's part of the reason why I started writing. I also sang so much when I was a kid, singing was how I dealt with it, but then I got, you know, shy as I went through life and got, you know, battered by life the way we all do. Uh, then I, I spent more time writing than singing and it's just what i've always it's what i've always done to deal with the haunting mm. i took a similar path um mm. with regard to singing a lot as as a kid um and then uh yeah. turning that into to poetry and then into prose and now i'm like mm. kind of being pulled back into into more poetics but sticking to prose and um yeah. that's interesting it, it must just be at least in part, it, um, the sort of like physicality of singing, like it feels good to, to really get yeah. it out there. Yeah. You, you're literally using your body as an instrument. Mm -hmm. I think there's something very special about that. It's, it's also so simple. You know, I remember being so incensed when I was a kid and people would ask me, do you play an instrument? Cause I didn't play an instrument. Mm -hmm. And I would say, well, I sing, am, am, am I not, allowed to call myself an instrument and they looked at me like I was insane you know because I was just a kid just a kid you don't know when you're a kid right but you're not supposed to say weird things like that but it's all right well now that you're an adult with books and, and academic mm -hmm. papers you can say things like the body is an instrument and people will go oh yes <laughs> very good yes that's right it is like that sometimes yeah yeah that's true yeah sometimes I get um enthusiastic agreement sometimes i don't and that's fine it's good sure yeah um especially in the age of of twitter enthusiastic <laughs> agreement is hard to come by i think i know i know it's such a weird landscape it's it's harsh it's harsh out there it's it's harsher than the desert in a way yeah well because the desert just just is <laughs> you're either prepared for it or you're not you know yeah. you don't know you don't have things constantly coming at you yeah, the desert has such beautiful silence too, you know. We don't really have that with social media. No. It's hard to find silent social media. <laughs> Not particularly. That would yeah. be an interesting experiment, but I don't know how you would make that happen. I don't either. I've thought about that too because I think I, you know, I'm probably just quieter than um I mean, I'm really quiet most of the time. Then when I'm not, I'm really, really not. I think What Are You is like, a, to me, it's a very loud book. There's some yeah. incredibly loud moments, like cacophonous moments. Um, but for the most part, I'm really a, a pretty quiet person and I have a quiet voice. And when I need to project, I absolutely will. But that's not my default mode. And so I've thought, 
like how can I use social media in a in a way that feels more interesting to me and the way that it would feel more interesting to me is to be more quiet, but I don't really know how to be quiet on social media. I really don't. I've tried. Uh, maybe sometimes I feel like I get there, but it's a, it's a, it's a paradoxical state, which is fine. I, I live inside paradox. We all do. I'm okay with that. Um, but it's like maybe an especially noisy time. And so, yeah, it's a puzzle. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. And it's hard because you have to break the silence to encourage other people to be silent. And then I know what's the point, right? Then, then what is it you're doing? It's yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, what are you is an interesting thing for me. I love second person. I've written Yay. yeah two things in second person, two book length works in second person um, with sort of the way I use second person. And this is a bit of a recap, but, uh, for for long time listeners but the way i use second person is you is the reader um and so i tend to not have the you character be very defined so that the reader would be able to fill in themselves yeah um which can make it a little hairy to read a book like what are you um yep. because then i'm like being interrogated for things that are like not things I've done or things that are adjacent to things that I've done or things that I've thought. Um, and um, I think it's uh, serendipitous that Sarah Gerard is, is blurbed on the front cover because true love while not in second person kind of also made me like confront myself in certain ways. Just interesting. Some, some of the male characters that were, I think presented to not be super likable reminded me a little bit too much of myself. And I was mm. like very uncomfy about it. Um, yeah. Oh, that's I'll tell Sarah. She, she'll be really happy to hear that. I think we had her on the show, but I don't know if I was that uh, honest about, about how I was feeling. So yeah. feel free to, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I really enjoy um, her work a, a whole lot. Yeah, I, I, I wrote her a fan letter after I read Binary Star. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, she's she's special. And um, so so yeah, I was talking to my to one of my friends about what are you and about second person, and she's just like, oh no, I don't do that. I construct a, a you outside of myself. Um, <laughs> that that yeah. the writing is on. I was like, oh, that would have been way easier for me to get through the book um, without without feeling so bad. Uh, the whole time and um huh so you felt interrogated by it i did i did and um it's it's interesting well because and again i was thinking about about charlene's writing particularly psychros because i had just finished i'm from nowhere and went right into what are you um and so i was kind of like in that same mode of the the thing that if for listeners who want to listen to that charlene Elsby episode I was having a hard time with um her main character in Psycho is kind of using the language of feminism or tangential sort of feminist ideas to like justify her her eventual murder spree mm, um yeah and I think I had mentioned it in that episode too but I, I had just started being fed a bunch of stuff on Instagram from like uh domestic labor is labor type women posting yeah. reels that were 
um, as a as a work from home dad, like making me feel very like on edge. Um, huh. Even if like, and it's been been months now since I've seen any of that stuff because I was actively fighting the algorithm because it was weird to be like taking a break from loading the dishwasher to see a handful of reels about how like men don't know how to load the dishwasher um oh, yeah okay and I understand yeah so all of that was like conflating and then mm-hmm. that was a couple months ago that she was on the show and so anyway I was sort of seeing um that same sort of like young feminist fury and especially the first part of what are you yeah Um, yeah, the the first part i think it changes a lot by the end it does yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. um i think i think dave fitzgerald's good reads review does does a good job of sort of um talking about the the more like political feminist political aspects Mm -hmm. of the book than i think i would be able to um and i i I totally have lost where i where i was going about that but like we can just talk but yeah that's that's kind of like where i was at the beginning and then and then by the end you is becoming more nebulous Mm -hmm. and and maybe internal and um i thought i thought that the book was constructed in, in a really cool way doing it that way Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, that book was kind of a beast to figure out the construction, in part because so much of it at the beginning, so much of it was not written with any kind of conscious plan in mind. Um, you know, it was a book that I wasn't I, I wasn't entirely sure this was ever going to be a book. In fact, I was pretty sure it wasn't going to be mm-hmm. um, until it suddenly was. Um, and I Actually, today is the uh, anniversary, the first anniversary of it being published. Yeah. And um, I'm now really at peace with it, and I am so thankful for the book, and I actually love it. I think I can say I love it, and I'm proud of it, but the first six months of its life, I just, I was still kind of in its, um, in its mood, I guess, and it was, it was a very transformative formative book to create um it really changed almost everything about me you know and um putting it out into the world at you know at this time and when everything feels so hyper commercialized you know i really wasn't entirely sure how to do any of it um but at this point i'm just really proud of it and i'm glad it exists and it's been so beautiful to see it taken up like and it's weird to me that it's being read more than i'm from nowhere is being read because to me nowhere is just like a very kind of like a more or less a standard plot at least as standard as i'm probably ever going to get in terms of creating plot and character and narrative arc and to me it feels so much more approachable than what are you like what are you is you know the dark strange confrontation with the abyss of the self and the world and everything and it's funny to see it being read so much more than nowhere was but i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that i knew nobody when I'm from nowhere came out, you know, Mm. absolutely nobody. And I am from nowhere. Like I don't have, you know, the, the money, the connections, the anything to make a a book blow up or, you know, to create a big splashy public persona, which is, which is fine. Um, But crafting what I had for, what are you crafting it into a book was this really interesting exercise in figuring out how, 
weird and wild can I keep it while not losing potentially losing every reader along the way once the sort of otherworldly stuff begins to enter and to me the you shifts with every passing section and um, you know figuring out how to do that but in a way that would keep attention and keep readers pulled in and drawn in was just this huge fun challenge um, but a challenge like a real challenge and uh, I don't know exactly how it was done I, I really don't I mean in part it was that I just knew it had to feel a certain way and I, I work by intuition and feel and so I kind of just sensed you know in my in my gut and my intuition when it was in the right spot and then you know an editor helps of course too but I just I just did it and I and I guess I trusted that eventually I would understand why I had needed to make the decisions that I had needed to make the same thing happened with my first book you know I knew there were certain things I needed to do but I didn't know why I couldn't explain it but now looking back I know why I thought what I thought and I know I was more or less right even though I don't I'm sure I would change both books if I could now. I would go back and tear them up and throw out so much of them and, you know, just want to change them a lot. But I understood why I was making the decisions I was making, even if I couldn't fully articulate it. And um, I'm just thankful. I'm just thankful. And I'm deep into writing another novel right now. And every time I start writing a book and I'm really enjoying it, I start getting this feeling like I might die soon. And so Mm. I just... I just get really thankful, really, Mm -hmm. really thankful that I've been able to do anything I've been able to do. Um, And I don't know what that is about. I've I've been talking about it with friends and I don't know, like my partner, who's just a, like he has the perfect sense of humor, you know, for someone like me, he's like, well, maybe you will die. So just write faster, (laughs) get it done. Uh, Yeah. I don't know where we started there, but I am I guess I'm really fascinated by the the ways that people have responded to what are you because you know there have been some pretty strongly negative reactions that surprised me maybe they shouldn't have surprised me but they did surprise me and I'm not really sure what you know what what that's about hmm. what I, I guess I'm thankful that anyone has a strong reaction to a book these days and that anyone reads because you know People don't read that much, I guess. Yeah. Do you mind talking about what some of the negative reactions were? Oh yeah, I don't mind at all. Um, I guess I should say though, like I don't read, I don't read reviews. I do not go onto Goodreads. I do not go onto Amazon. I don't do any of that. Whatever I read is whatever has been either sent to me directly or like tweeted right at me. Mm. Um, I don't. I don't go looking for any coverage or reviews because I don't want to know too much of that is um, I know myself too much of that is not going to help me. Mm. Um, um, Especially because like I come from, you know, I spent some time in the academic world and I sort of have one foot in and that's a place that's philosophy, especially super, super hostile to women. And and now I'm far enough outside of it to see the intense damage that it did to me. Mm. And, um, I don't need to go looking for people to like hold me accountable or remind me that I am um, limited 
you know, I know that I'm limited. We are all limited. I don't really need reminders of that. And so um, there was only one, I don't even know if negative is the right word because I don't, um, I don't want to, well, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth and I don't want to make any assumptions about what the authors were actually wanting to accomplish. But there was one review that was really puzzling to me and I wouldn't have seen it if they hadn't have sent it directly to me. Um, but that one was, I just like, I could feel, I feels like I felt anger coming off of it. Like there was to mm. me, it felt like anger coming off of it, like steam. And I just didn't really know what to do with that. Like, I, I don't know if, if a book I wrote made you angry, I don't, really don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, what can I, what can I possibly say or do in response to that? You know, what can anyone do? It's not about me either. You know, if a piece of art has upset you on the one hand, I think good, mm -hmm. it's a good thing. But then on the other hand, what could the creator of it possibly do? Like they can't just pluck it out of existence and take it away. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I can kind of like, I can construct in my brain the type of person who might like read the first part and get pretty grumpy about it. Um, yeah. And it, I guess is bizarre to me why they would have found their way to clash books in the first place, that kind of guy. Um, mm. But the world is strange and you know, who knows, yeah. who knows how that might've happened, but yeah. Um, and I mean, I don't want to like dismiss everyone's on their own journey. Um, Absolutely. But, um, yeah, I just, uh, yeah. Um, I, I think that, um, there's just, I think because the book is so nebulous that you can have a lot of reactions to it, but it's not so nebulous as to be like completely experimental or something, right? Like it's, yeah, I've definitely read less concrete stuff this year even um yeah i think there's just kind of like enough of that ambiguity um yeah especially with the, the nebulous you but there's enough like concrete events yes that that you cover that can be like relatable yeah uh in in a lot of different ways yeah well and criticism is always so gendered you know mm -hmm. gender hasn't entered the scene yet and it doesn't need to necessarily but i i i think we it's not also it's not just gendered so much enters criticism but i think um, literary criticism is often really gendered you know how often do we see a book written by a woman called navel gazing nonsense <laughs> and it could be the exact same content written by a guy and and people are like this is really deep and dark and beautiful. Thank you for going to that place for us, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just think we should all ask ourselves, like who sold us on this idea that anything introspective is navel gazing or worthless, not worth our time, right? Like who really benefits from all of us thinking that introspection through art is a bad thing, mm -hmm. you know, or a useless thing or a frivolous thing, or if we code it as, you know, feminine and, soft whatever you know yeah my my gut reaction to that is like ah oh, that's that's some like bourgeoisie propaganda right you gotta yeah. you gotta tell people that that looking deep at somebody else's introspection is bad and, and not worth your time so that you can't um empathize with other people better yeah and so you never do it yourself either right mm -hmm. you just sort right. of 
you can stay a zombie if you want just stay a zombie and just do what you're told for the most part yeah um but yeah i i think that there's um what was i gonna say holy cow that's weird they're hitting me with the havana syndrome or something they're hitting me with the rays um you were talking about what are you yeah um I think that the introspection within what are you is, is really cool in how it shifts. Um, mm. And I guess I kind of want to go back to that, that push and pull between like agency and sure. desire. Um, and yeah. I noticed that like reading the outside of the book, that there's lots of different people referring to like, uh, dichotomies um, mm-hmm. Sarah says desire and shame innocence and experience um, Nate Lippens has fiercely direct and enigmatic at the same time um, and even even the it's not the blurb the synopsis or, or whatever yeah. sales pitch slow yeah. and fast soft and hard drunk and sober yep. performs its own destruction and recreation i guess Mm -hmm. so is that a a thing that was conscious um and i know you said that it was kind of like fragments that got put together but like i guess in that putting together process was that a thing that you were kind of like looking at um clashing extremes Mm -hmm. yeah at some point i realized i i I found language for it at some point i realized like oh shit i'm writing an everything book Mm. you know it contains everything. This is one of those everything books. Um, and that means every polarity, you know, Mm -hmm. every single polarity is always present. And so of course it's kind of maddening, but that's, that's the kind of realism that I want to achieve. Do you know, I don't need realism in terms of, uh, you know, the outside political world. You know, maybe one day I'll write one of those books, but for this book, what mattered to me, once I understood it was a book and I was, more consciously constructing it, even though there was, there was still some unconscious elements for sure. Um, it was everything all at once, all the polarities, you know, every, every moment of love also contained a bit of hate or the seeds of hate and vice versa. And it was, there was no writing out of that. Do you know, there was Mm -hmm. only writing only through no out. And so it's sort of like, I, accepted the challenge of the book um i wasn't always sure i wanted to even after it was out i wasn't sure i wanted to accept the challenge of this book do you know um but i did i did it and now i'm now i'm really pleased with it pleased with the fact that it exists right and that i and that i exist too (laughs) part of the part of the writing of this book was understanding what it means for a a person to exist you know Mm -hmm. as a singular individual but also never as a singular individual always as a node within a network within right. a node within a network within a node within a network ad infinitum you know it was working through all of this it was expressing all of this it was living into it and through it and understanding there was no other way for this particular human <laughs> instantiation that is me there was no other way for me to live uh, this book it simply needed to be written and I knew that whatever I did on the other side of it would be um, 
interesting to me. Yeah. That's all I can do. <laughs> yeah, I think, I wonder if I would be better served to go back and read this someday and allow myself to be the eye sometimes. Yeah. Um, and if that would change the reading of the book, I think it certainly would. Um, because it, because I placed myself kind of like in opposition to the narrative, there was that mm. like interrogation that I was talking about, but also sometimes, um, I don't know. I probably could have allowed myself to get into the narrative as well by being mm. like, Oh, in this chapter, I'm more of the I and less mm. of the you. Um, yeah. Which, who knows? I think that maybe some of the people who are having a harder time with the book would, would have an easier time doing that. It's trying to understand where you should be in relation to the text is an interesting question kind of in yeah. general, I think. Yeah, and that's one that I... I... I don't have an answer to, and I think we should be really suspicious of anyone who tells you exactly where the reader and where the writer is in relation to the text, because it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. To me, the relationship is never going to be that simple. Um, and to read a book is actually a very creative act, I think. It's an act of creation in and of itself, um, let alone writing it, but reading it as well. And so I think, uh, yeah, it's really probably a very important part of being a reader to play around with the relation to the book, to the book's subjects, to the book's uh, characters, maybe the writer or maybe not, because I don't know. I don't know what any of us know about any writer or any creator of anything. I really don't know. We sure, we sure seem to think we know a lot, but I, I don't know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, we're with the types of writing that we cover on the show, like, we're generally uh, not super close to like the hero's journey kind of idea, but yeah. Um, yeah. I, I guess I haven't really thought about like swimming through different positions with, re with relation to mm. the text. Like sometimes mm -hmm. I'm in it, sometimes I'm in opposition, sometimes it's reflecting me. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, yeah. you know, cause, cause oftentimes I, I read a lot of, fantasy and science fiction too it's my yeah my inner child living through the adult me who has time to read books and 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 whatever and like it's always so easy to identify like what type of person is supposed to be I represented know. with with what type of character um, yeah and that's an interesting skill in itself that i think is probably why i stopped trying to write fantasy books and started writing mm. weirder stuff because it, it yeah i just don't know enough people <laughs> to be able well, to successfully well, write yeah well this is what i was i mean you could of course you could successfully write whatever you want you know that's up to you mm -hmm. but i mean part of what i i think what i was sort of getting at earlier was the the fact that i don't want to write books that offer the reader or the writer a very clear um, sort of set of rules for how to approach or how to engage, mm -hmm. you know, and how to understand oneself in relation to a text. To me, a, a book is always an environment, always. 
and you enter an environment as a, a sensitive being who's, you know, ready to be um, infected. <laughs> Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Literally ready to be infected by everything around you, everything in the environment. And so you you enter the environment of a book and you feel it out. You read the room, you know, and you you you're in one corner of the room for a while and then maybe you get up and you walk over to the other other corner of the room. You know, it's a living relation. It's not to me it's not static, it's not fixed. And this ties into your question about desire and the push and pull between um desire and and identity um it's all it's all related like the way that we fall in love is also the way we read a book you know it's the way we engage with the world and to read a book to enter the environment of a book is to possibly fall in love and when you're going to fall in love you you don't know exactly what you desire you are open you are radically open to the possibilities and things unfold in front of you. And if you if you want to be closed off, you can be closed off, but then your engagement with the book or with the world or with the person is going to be uh, possibly less rich and possibly or probably more rule-bound. To me, that's not particularly interesting when it comes to artwork. You know, I don't, I didn't get into writing books because I wanted rules. <laughs> you know, exact opposite. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So in a way, I don't really know what else to say about any of my work. <laughs> right, at all. that's fair. I, um, I'm I'm constantly being brought back to to one of my college classes where the professor, um, was it was it was the class was called um, argument and analysis. It was like a communications class. Okay. Because broadcasting degree. Um, and he he was talking about like the Freudian idea of, of the ego and the id and the superego and, and was going off on this tangent that I can't remember how we got there. But he ended it with, with saying, um, what if our brains are just like an antenna? Um, and I yeah. could tell he lost the room, but that has stuck with me since. Oh, he lost the room with that? It it really what? seemed like it. And That's again, just getting good. You you have to understand this wasn't a philosophy class, this was a communications class, so it was a whole bunch of yeah. like ad and PR people yeah. who wanted to be sports broadcasters. And then yeah. it was just like me. Like he 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 and I <laughs> uh bonded outside of class um because we were yeah. both listening to the Buddhist Geeks podcast at the time. Oh nice. Um and uh I think he he's a, a German guy who I think went to and I'm I'm gonna get it wrong one of like the Kantian namesake university in in Germany mm, before coming to America perhaps mm-hmm. I, there's there's no way I could guess but like I could tell he was he was very much a a philosophy guy and that's why he was teaching yeah. that specific class about argument and yeah. analyzing analyzing arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, which I wish I had been in, in, in a better place to to take more from that class, but I could say that about every class I had in college. Yeah, um, always. Yeah, same. The twenties is is your early twenties is a really bad time to be in college. I think, <laughs> Un- unfortunately, <laughs> it's also the most like logistically effective time to be in college. But man, oh man, if I could do it again, uh, I'd, yeah. have, I'd have earned that that debt. Um. But but yeah, so so where is your philosophy background in? Um, well, I as an undergraduate, I had no like 
plan of study. Do you know, I just, mm-hmm. um, I took a philosophy uh, 100 class. It was, um, it's just intro, an intro class. And I, I loved that, really loved that. Um, but as an undergraduate, um, my philosophy education was like very standard analytic philosophy. Um, I didn't really have any of what they call the continental stuff, which is what I ended up specializing in. I didn't really have any of that at all as an undergraduate until my very last year. And it was coincidentally the, the first time I had ever taken a philosophy class with a woman. She was the only uh, woman in the department. She was a brand new hire. Um, it was like tremendously controversial that she was, that she was hired. Wow. Um, yeah, I remember, um, I was like part of the student hiring committee, you know, because I was, oh, cool. I was a very, very good student. Um, and so like we were there for, I was there for part of the deliberation and it was very, very heated, extremely heated. Um, when I think back on some of the things that those, those men that I really looked up to, um, some of the things they were saying, why did I not, like, why did I not see that they were, they were thinking of me that way too, right? Mm-hmm. As someone with quite literally half a brain at any rate. Um, my, my, uh, my focus in philosophy, once I got to graduate school, I took a detour cause I needed to work. And so I was a teacher for a while and then I went back to grad school or went to grad school, but there I ended up focusing on, um, Bataille, Georges Bataille, mm. and continental philosophy in the 20th century. Um, but even that wasn't entirely intentional because I didn't know what I was going to study when I went back. I just knew that I was not done with philosophy. And I had questions I wanted to pursue, you know, with with all of me, you know, with all of my being. And I knew there was really only one way to do that. And it was to try to get into a PhD program where they more or less pay you you know, it's not it. Mm-hmm. It's you're not really living high on the hog, but you know they more or less pay you to pursue those questions you want to pursue. And I just had many questions about what ineffable experience is, or what limit experiences are. You know, I wanted to get at the things that philosophy really struggles to to deal with. You know, the limits of our understanding and the limits of language and those spots where communication breaks down and something slips, you know, that's, um, that's always been a place of fascination for me. So I found Bataille, you know, because Bataille spends a ton of time in that realm. And uh, it was also because of the people that I was studying with, you know, the professors in a department all have particular um, specialties. And um, the person who I thought I was going to work with at university did not end up being the person that I was working with. And there was someone else I, I worked with, Karen Houle. She was a poet and a philosopher. Um, and she had she had a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom. And so I worked with her. And she, she I think she helped me make that project, um, you know, as as wild as I needed it to be. And then she really also helped me rein it in and keep it extremely tight analytically. So it, even though it was a continental project, I was digging into what uh, Bataille called non-knowledge. We were also putting it sort of to work and testing it out as an epistemic concept. So I ended up doing a sort of analytic continental bridge move, which is um, not easy mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> um, and, you know, I actually, met Charlene in grad school. I don't know if you know this. I don't. But 
Yeah, we knew, we didn't know each other actually. We met maybe once or twice in person. Um, and we, I want to say we went to a couple parties together. Um, but I didn't know her, you know, I never took mm-hmm. a class with her. Like I didn't know her. I didn't know her mind at all. I didn't know her in fact, until after I had just published, I'm from nowhere. And she reached out to me and cause I think, you know, we were friends on social media. She reached out and said, Hey, I have some books and I've been looking for a publisher. Um, would you recommend yours? And so we started, um, you know, being in regular contact after that. And, you know, since then, and obviously she's gone on to publish like two dozen books. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) She's just so prolific and she's so driven and disciplined and her mind is incredible, beautiful, insane. Love it. Absolutely love it. Um, but yeah, I met, I met, I met her there. Um, we never really did philosophy together, Mm. but, uh, we are each other's, um, support system also sometimes like when I go to into, the world of professional philosophy here and there for conferences or workshops or events. I know that I can text her and say, you know, like the guy across from me at dinner treated me like an idiot. You know, I know mm-hmm. she's a person I can always, you know, we can always commiserate because there's still not a ton of women in philosophy and it is still, it's just so fucking rough out there. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I feel like, uh, I feel like Bataille has been haunting this show for a long time um yeah because he's everywhere because kitchell brought him up um uh and i think that was maybe my first experience with batai so anyone who will go back and listen to that episode with m kitchell is he was very patient with me um because i was like (laughs) this was pre me like um learning about like the fact that there is serious study into like western esotericism um which is where most of my like philosophy reading is is kind of rooted in these days um yeah and so batai comes up there too a little bit with his his work on sacrifice um yeah for sure which is interesting but still way above my head um Mm -hmm. and then i i received from like my sister for christmas um his collection of writings on surrealism uh which which i recently read because it was one of the few books of his that doesn't contain eroticism in the title it feels like so i was like (laughs) i I need to read bataille because i need to understand what my my show guests are talking about um and that that was the one i got but that was an interesting one too just because he was sort of adjacent to them um, kind, yeah. of, kind of in and out and, and at odds. Oh, yeah. And... Well, and he had real problems with them. I, I love his criticism of a lot of the surrealist art movement, you know. Um, he Well, he, he and Breton famously had a huge falling out, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, I think, like, his main, his main criticism of them is that um, they just really, at the end of the day, they just wanted to make something beautiful you know all they cared about was the flower not the not the shit that the flower grew out of like mm-hmm. literal shit you know cow shit um this was one of his sort of refrains that all they cared about was the flower and not the shit yeah um, <laughs> but yeah i mean but he has these moments right he he said he's sort of i feel like it's maybe a 20-year cycle or something um but it's he's also just an important thinker because he was you know he set the foundation he laid a a really solid foundation even though he was kind of an anti-systematic thinker you know for someone like Foucault Foucault could not have done anything he did without Bataille you know Foucault famously said like 
Bataille is the most important thinker of the 20th century. And, you know, people like Deleuze who, and Guattari who had big moments, I think they're kind of waning right now, but they're also, even though they, they didn't like to mention him by name, they were massively influenced by Bataille. You know, a lot of contemporary political thinking, um, especially around conservation, is very interestingly tied to Bataille's understanding of uh, energy and expenditure. And so he just has these moments, I think, when he sort of comes back around and there's this whole new school of people who are influenced by him in a different way. And I, you know, I, I try to keep, I keep up with the scholarship for the most part, but um, not a ton, especially because now there's so much, you know, like there's all this scholarship on him and fetish and what, what a fetish is and Mm. fetishism, Um, just tons and tons of stuff. That's so fascinating just from the outside. Like it's so exciting and it feels Mm. maybe foolishly like more accessible than like kind of like the quantum science stuff that happens. Those are like two things. Like, I guess when I was in high school, I, I briefly considered going to school for astrophysics um and i just i had too much trouble in the in the advanced physics class i was taking i was just like mm-hmm. oh no i'm having yeah. so much trouble when it's algebra based and when it becomes calculus based i'm going to lose my mind um yeah. so like i always kind of say that i'm a fan of science i'm similarly like a fan of of philosophy and i love mm-hmm. to um see just like the title of a paper in somebody's tweet and just be like oh I wonder what that is. <laughs> oh, really? That's nice. I think that's good. Philosophy needs all the, the fans it can get. <laughs> um, so I guess one of the things I guess I teased and um, may, maybe we can, can even wrap it around to just like reading in general, but like for someone like me who, who may be able to get their hands on academic papers, but like obviously... I took two philosophy classes in college. Mm -hmm. Um, Like how, how does one even begin to read something like that? Oh, I don't know. Um, The only thing I tell people, you know, especially when I have young students or extremely beginner students, or, you know, I've, I've taught um, at the community college in uh, Richmond. um, One of the community colleges that is, you know, I really, I love working with people who've never, ever touched philosophy before, um, but who have had a great interest. I really think all you need is interest um, and focus. And you just have to read it over and over again and make notes to yourself and ask yourself what is happening here. Um, I think so-called secondary literature can be helpful where someone can explain it for you. Uh, But also I would be, I'd be cautious about leaning too heavily on that because you know, academics have their own agendas. You know, they really always have their own agendas. And um, the farther away from academia, the more I can see that, you know, the more I can see that someone's insistence that, you know, so-and-so be read in a particular way has a lot to do with them building their own career, you know, and needing to maintain ties and associations with all sorts of other thinkers and stuff. So I would say all you really need to do is just give yourself over to the text and read it over and over again and ask yourself what is happening here and then talk about it too. Um, you know, even people who like, you know, I, I was a grad student for years and there are many books that I wouldn't touch unless I was going to read them with 
a group of friends who were also working on philosophy together because it's just sometimes it's just too much or they're too dense or there's there's just too much happening on the page and too much happening off the page that I don't yet know about or maybe I need a little bit more historical background or whatever so some texts are just really really hard to do on your own but Bataille, for instance, I don't think he's he's too hard to do on your own if you're willing to just uh, get in there. And, you know, every thinker has their own phases, you know, like some people loved to make fun of Derrida for how difficult he was to read. Well, like when I read some of his stuff, I think this is actually not hard to read at all. This is perfectly clear and wonderful. It's just poetic. It's looping. You know, he's coming around and around to the same point in a hundred different ways weaving a story in, weaving literary analysis in, all of it, like it's actually quite easy and pleasant to read. But then some of his other stuff, I think like, oh yeah, I see, this is where the criticism is. Like, you know, so you, I think you really just have to get in there yourself and see, you know, which periods of a thinker's life do I like? You know, which which of their work really resonates with me? And also I would say, um, just pick what you want to read carefully. You know, think of it like, you know, like going into meditation with a question that you want to just sort of slowly let your meditating self work through. Now think of it that way, you know, pick up a book. Um, if, if you want to think about sacrifice, for instance, and you want to read some Bataille, just go into it asking yourself, okay, what does he mean by sacrifice? What is sacrifice? And just kind of let it wash over you and see what happens. You know, I, I've known a lot of people who I think read philosophy in such strange ways. And to me, it doesn't make any sense. I think it works for them, but I don't know. It, it, it wouldn't work for me. Like I knew someone in grad school who would say, I cannot progress from one sentence to the next until I'm certain I've understood everything in that sentence I just read. And to me, I would lose my fucking mind. Oh. I couldn't do that. Also, I need to bathe in it for a while. Mm. You know, I really just have to sit in it and let it wash over me. I do that with everything I read just let it wash over you. Like, I don't need to grasp and understand yet, you know, like down the road, I'll understand eventually, maybe if I'm lucky, you know, just, just get in there and see what happens. I, I think there are probably lots of people out there who have like 10 step guides to reading philosophy or mastering uh, the art of argument building. Like you can go anywhere you wanted to with all that shit, but I'd say let your curiosity lead the way and trust your own uh, intuitive mind and heart to know when you've found something that is working for you. Plus, like this is the thing uh, that philosophy should give us is like a, you know a really rich relationship with ourselves and with the text. So I'll read chapter thirty-eight or section thirty-eight. I'm not sure what it's called. I have a uh, I have an advanced copy here that's all tattered. So I'll read 38 from What Are You? I stay quiet and small and resignation arrives, but I am not resigned to you or to you within me. I am resigned to me, that to be a me requires somehow being with you. It makes you less inside me. I don't know how it's possible. Maybe you grew tired of me. I no longer have the world. And somehow that gives me a world. I can't quite explain it. The space where you were grows and grows. And I think it's no longer emptiness itself. I think it might be care. I think it might be the place from which I care. 
yes, I'm a fool, but I'm not that kind of fool. I know what I'm doing. Washing dishes in a sandstorm, building a house in a flood zone, singing in my best voice to a room full of deaf school children. You still growing inside me or me growing in you or both. They say it's either bloom or decay, but we both know it's both, always. Every last one of them lied to me about you. They didn't mean to lie. I know they were just reporting what they knew, but it was not enough for me. They did not know what I had. They did not have what I have. Maybe they're to blame, not you, not us. There are some kinds of intimacy I cannot expect anyone to understand. No one can help me make sense of them. I'm not saying that I'm healed, that I'm whole. Deception is still sometimes the law of the land here, and I like it. I like it. What does that tell you about me? You didn't know I was capable of it, did you? I hit it. I hit it well. You don't know the half of it, baby. You never did. <laughs>